Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You better catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 55, with the title, Being on the Periphery of Society. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Kakan Qureshi, B-E-M. Kakan describes himself as someone who is a, the founder of Finding a Voice, a writer, speaker, and undercover activist. When I asked Kakan to describe his superpower, he said it is being able to offer logic and reason in complex situations. Hello, Kakan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joan. It's lovely to be here. I'm really pleased to be here. Nice to meet you again. Yes, thank you so much. So, Kakan, tell me, how have you felt on the periphery of society? I think what it is for me is that even as a, a young child, um, in the playground, I never quite fitted in with everybody around me. You know, obviously, we, there was young boys and girls um, and I felt different and I couldn't I couldn't put a, a label to that difference I just felt that I was different in many ways um, and as I grew older that difference kind of manifested itself in different ways because I wasn't masculine enough I suppose to fit in with the peers my you know other boys because they were quite sporty they would play games rough and tumble um and obviously I, I wasn't a girl you know and i didn't fit in with the girls because boys and girls didn't mix in the playground at that point um and i, I stood out by with the fact that i used to like playing with the, the dolls doing the girls hair sort of playing sing-along hopscotch skipping ropes that type of thing so you know but that kind of marked me out initially from from a very young age <laughs> but then at the same time as i grew older the other marked difference between myself and others was that although i'm born and bred here in the midlands and i'm of south asian heritage i didn't feel that i was muslim enough for the muslim community and I didn't necessarily feel too South Asian because when I used to speak um, Urdu or Punjabi, um, people used to sort of ridicule the way I was speaking. They said it wasn't strong enough or I didn't speak, pronounce the words correctly and and then sort of mock me in that way too. The other aspect to that is that, you know, being Muslim and I had an awful lot of um, Hindu and Sikh Christian friends um, and I didn't quite fit in with them because clearly I was Muslim, but my Muslim friends as well didn't feel that I fitted in with them because I seemed to show characteristics, either traditional or cultural or otherwise, that seemed to fit in more with Sikhism or Hinduism. So in that respect, you know, I was always the outsider. There was always something about me that marked me out as being different, and hence why I, I said that I was on the peripherals of society, because... To all intents and purposes, not only was it about my sexual orientation and gender identity that was kind of being picked up on, but it was also the way I presented myself culturally and within my ethnicity and, you know, in the community as well. I, I didn't quite fit in with the Muslim community, didn't quite fit in with the 
the Sikh or the Hindus. I didn't quite fit in with any sort of community. Um, and in hindsight, I, I just think that made me much more of a shy, introverted young boy. Um, and it kind of made me take myself into myself. And I used to spend a lot of time in the bedroom, used to spend a lot of time reading books and an awful lot of time with um, my mom in particular and my two sisters. So being the youngest of seven, um, I've got two older, two older sisters and four older brothers. I didn't quite fit in with them either um, because I didn't fit the, the kind of stereotypical gender roles of the males within the, the family household. Um, those who would, you know, they'd always have time to go out, do their things and come home late. Whereas I was very much, um, I suppose, conditioned, I suppose, or brought up to be a home bird and trying to respect the, the culture, um, the, what we deemed as quite normal things in the household. And I don't speak up about what I was feeling or what I was expressing. So even in the family home, there was things that marked me out as if to say, well, you know, I'm not a kind of a practical person to go out and do things. I was much more of a, a thinker. I used to reflect a lot and analyze a lot. Um, and again, it was a case that that marked me out as different. And even now in the workplace as well, there's always something that I seem to go against the grain of what everybody expects. You know, whatever the rules are, even though I try to adhere to it sometimes, I challenge and question it in other ways as well, you know, policies and procedures. So, and it always kind of um, marks me out as different and hence why I say I'm on the peripheral. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people might be able to relate to that as well because on the one side, we're trying to look for, to place ourselves in a box but on the other side, we want to break out of that box and make us make us a bit more unique than what we are. So I'm I'm not part of the Muslim community. I'm consider myself ethnically British, white, middle class to a large extent, with no real religion. So I look at religion from the outside, and I, and I would always imagine, for my maybe my naivety or my position, that the Muslim community. Is, is quite formal and quite strict in terms of the, the adherence to the faith. Is that, is that a fair representation or is it, is it, or is it more becoming more relaxed as a, as a faith? Yeah, um, it's, not, it's not so much about it's becoming more relaxed. I think what it is, is that if we look at the history of Islam, it's been quite a progressive religion anyway. Um, and I think it's about how people adopt or adapt what is expected of us. For example, in our household, on the one side... Um, yes, we adhere to certain traditions and certain aspects of the faith. But on the other side, as a whole, as a family, we were quite liberal in our in our thinking as well. And we had to learn to adapt to what we today we call it British values. But we had to kind of learn to compartmentalise, you know, how we behaved outside the family home and how we res responded to people outside and again, we had to be different on the inside of the household. But, you know, we were very kind of, um, we talked a lot about different things. There was no kind of real taboos as such. Um, the only taboo was about sexuality and mental health. And even now, um, 40 odd years later, that still seems to be very much a taboo subject matter within the younger generation and families, which is a great shame, you know. But even in the extended family, we have people and individuals who are quite um, quite orthodox, I suppose, in their approaches. 
Uh, and then we've got some people who are quite flexible in their approaches. Some of my, for example, my family, some members of the family accept me as a gay man and my partner, and some of us don't, you know. Um, I think it's just like any other faith and religion out there that there's people who, there's such a wide spectrum of religion, you know, in, in the Abrahamic faiths that people are kind of, it's like not necessarily pick and choose, but it's very brought up. Mm. Do do you account for because I've noticed some of your posts on Facebook and social media, how you you always seem to have examples of um, people telling you that what who you are goes against Muslims uh, values that you're you're kind of how can you be a good Muslim how can you you know, be gay and Muslim these things are incompatible and there's a you're getting into a lot of debates about this that must be quite a challenge for you. Well, it is, you know, because, as I said, I've had it for so long from such a young age, you know, going back 40 years. And then you, you just get to a certain point when you just think, oh, come on, you know, where, where's the progress? Where's How, how are we going to make change and attitudes? Um, and I think for me personally, um, when the LGBT school rows occurred here in Birmingham in 2019, um, I really wanted to flag up to say that, these young people who are protesting outside primary schools, which is supposed to be one of the safest places that a child could ever be, you know, creating a hostile environment, they did not represent either my community in Birmingham and they did not represent Muslim or Pakistani people overall. Some people can't contract that and say, yes, they do. They, they do represent Pakistani Muslims. Um, but I was saying, you know, the younger generation who are protesting I ask them specifically, you know, that they are born and bred here in this country with all its um, equality laws, uh, same-sex legislation, etc. What was occurring in their mind to go out there and protest about some books which were celebrating diversity? And that to me was quite stressful and distressing. Um, and I really wanted to try to get to grips with that. And they kept saying, yeah, we educated here. Um but this is our faith and this is our religion, this is what it says. And I asked a number of individuals at that time, but have you actually read the Quran? And one of the lead protesters had read it, but he had read a, a very, very fundamental aspect of it. And then the other younger lead protester, he hadn't read it at all. In fact, he told us openly that he had no interest in religion whatsoever, but he only did this to save his sister. Um, and that to me, it didn't make sense. And it was contradiction in terms because for me, with my research and my upbringing and the way my parents treated and accepted me, that symbolizes and demonstrates what being Muslim is, what it is to have that faith, because it's about acceptance and unconditional love and respecting me for who I am, rather than what I could have become or where my life was taking me. And yes, to all intents and purposes, um, there was a point in my life where my mum did talk about marriage for a couple of years. Um, and growing up as well, maybe I was confused or not, but I did have aspirations, or rather, I tried to fulfil my parents' expect expectations of me to think, okay, yes, whatever you want to do, if you want me to get married and have children, I'll, I'll try that. But there was something inside me that told me this isn't what I want and this isn't who I am. 
So yeah, the overriding imperative is to be honest with yourself. At the end of the day, you can't you can't live your life by other people's rules and by pleasing other people all the time. So yeah, I I fully respect and understand that at some point you had to say, actually, no, this is me. It was, and, and as I said, I, because I was so introverted and quiet in some respects, um, for me to actually come out the way I did, um, I just thought to myself, where did that come from? But I think the seed of that coming out stemmed from the fact that I had such a close relationship with my mom and my bond was so strong and we've always been very open and honest about anything in our lives. Um, and at that point, when she did finally confront me to ask me about, um, you know, how come I changed so much? Because I was a home bird, went to London for a couple of years, uh, came back and I started going out. And for me, it was about asserting my identity and my personality and what I was wanting to do. Um, and it was during that time period that I met my partner. And then my mom became a little bit suspicious, I suppose. And she began asking questions one evening. And, you know, it's quite a traumatic, emotional uh, conversation that we had. Yeah. But I thought to myself right there and then, I can do this two ways. It's either I tell my mom openly or I can say it's just a friend and lead a lie. And I just thought I can't do that. And I just thought whatever the consequences of that coming out, I have to face up to it. Um, so I did come out to my mom. Um, and I was really fortunate that my mom had said, whatever makes you happy makes me happy. You know, um, and I had a partner at the, uh, who understood the cultural dynamics, you know, and he was saying, if they throw you out, Kakan, you've always got a place with me. You can always come to my house and live with me good and proper, um, which is what I did do. We're still together about 30 years later. <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 So, you know, but with my dad, as I said, it was a different kind of um, attitude. He was somewhat um, homophobic for a long time. But I think there was anger from both sides. Um, my relationship with my father wasn't great at the best of times anyway. Um, there was there was conflict, but not sort of like major conflict. It's just that our relationship wasn't as strong as it could have been. It, it, I didn't have that relationship with my dad, the same as my siblings had with him. You know, they could interact and talk freely with him. Whereas for me, it was like... Um, my dad used to say I was quite abrupt with him, to be honest. Um, but I didn't realise how why we collided the way we did until he passed away. And I wrote a short novella, and I realised we, we shared so many strong characteristics. Um, that's possibly why we clashed. And then I realised that we carry so much um, passion, I suppose, passion to make change and make lives better for other people. Um because my father was an activist in his own right. He tried to integrate um, the South Asian communities into the British communities. You know, he was trying to find ways to show that, you know, the South Asian community aren't aliens at all. We might share different foods or dress sense or, you know, different ways to pray. But at the same time, we're still human beings and we still have the same issues and struggles as our Western counterparts. Um and here I am, so many years later, practically following in his footsteps, but taking that little leap in a different direction slightly because I, I advocate for LGBT equality in the South Asian community. Amazing. I, 
just listen to something you're saying there about i remember telling my mum about me about five or six years ago so she, I'd, I'd lived my life the majority of my life before I transitioned. And I remember telling my mum and I asked her, did you have any idea? And she had no idea. I hadn't signposted this at all. And, but I, I felt like I had to tell my mum because I didn't believe I could be honest with the world. If I couldn't be honest with my mum, it was one of those things that you, you should be able to tell your mum anything. And if you can't, then are you being honest with yourself or something? So uh, I, I was very passionate about making sure that I told her face to face um and she was amazing she was absolutely wonderful she uh she embraced me we hugged yes it took her a few months to get the hang of it to uh to to be brave to meet me as me and uh she had tears in her eyes occasionally and i'm still not sure whether those tears and the tears in her eyes were happy tears or sad tears i've never asked her. but all i knew was she she embraced me from the first moment i told her which is fantastic and my father, like yours, we clashed over many, many years and had, have got long periods where we don't talk. And when I, I told him, because he, he's, he has a hearing impairment, I wrote him a letter. And that's how he likes to communicate. And uh, he wrote me a letter back. And it wasn't a rejection. It was a, don't be hasty. We can fix you. Think about your future and, and what this will mean. Um, but at the time, it, it really made me kind of, I say angry, not angry with a big A, angry little A maybe, frustrated that he thought he could fix me. But then I, I read it again a year later and saw that there was actually love in there. Actually, what he wanted, he was worried about me, not worried about himself. So I, I saw it in a different light and wrote back and said, look, I've missed you. It would be a shame if we never communicated again. I want to meet, I want to have a coffee, I want to chat, and I want to rebuild our our." our relationship as, as a parent and child something and we have we've met since and it it was a completely <laughs> indifferent experience we didn't talk about me at all we talked about other stuff and if anything it was very powerful to have a conversation that didn't revolve, revolve around talking about me so I, I really enjoyed it and i'm looking forward to seeing him again soon so i really understand the the challenges of interacting with parents especially when you're telling them something so profound as being gay or being trans or being or being different, if you like, yeah. So I can I can I can I can empathise completely with that. Yeah, I think I think for me as well that the, one of the other differences, I suppose, is because they had such high expectations that you know that I was like um, like the darling of the family, I suppose, and they used to say that whatever Mum wants, Kakan will do it. You know, he's the one who'll go down the excuse the pun, but the straight and narrow, you know, um, and that Kakan is the one who's going to sort of get married and give mum what she wants because one of her um, dreams, I suppose, was to have a beautiful home, have lots of grandkids around, you know, that's kind of, um, it sound, it's a bit stereotyped image, but to be that kind of grandmother um, and likewise, my, my father was the same as well. But I mean, obviously they've got, they have got grandchildren, but they thought that I would give them a beautiful wife. She'll be, you know, helping my mom in the kitchen and around the household. And so these stereotypes were there. Um, and I was quite happy to work along those stereotypes and try and make it happen initially. But there was a point in my life where I just thought, this isn't me. And I began to question who I was, you know, um, and especially as a student in London, um, 
where I went to a drama college and I was surrounded by people who quite openly um, identified as part of the LGBT community. Um, you know, and there was that the time period that I was there, um, I had lots of questions in my mind that I kind of, I, I didn't know who to tell, you know, I thought at some point was I, was I gay? Was I transgendered? Was I bisexual? I had all these kind of conflicting questions to try and figure it all out. Um, you know, where at some point it impacted on my mental health, um, you know, uh, and that kind of drew me back a bit again, because you're looking now sort of circa 1990, whereby there was the age of, you know, yourself, there was HIV, AIDS, Section 28, you know, there was, not only was there um, political oppressions at that time, so, you know, and then I, I, I call it now, I call it religious guilt because I used to think if I go out with somebody and they happen to be of the same sex and I, I was to kiss them, you know, that straight away will put me in hellfire and damnation because we were brought up that being gay is forbidden. It's a sin. Um, likewise, in the church as well, you know, I hear many stories from Christian people who say, you know, I've identified as part of the LGBT community, but my faith from the church says that God doesn't allow it. So, you know, I think that level of oppression was coming from all sides, you know, politically, socially, in the family. Um, and it's, it was a case of how do I come through this? And in my mind, at that time, again, it was two ways. It's either I try and be stronger and battle on, or I end it all. And that was my two options. I didn't think there was going to be any other third option you know, so, yeah, and for me, uh, again, as I said, being on the peripherals, everybody who was a drama student happened to be white. There was only about four or five of us who, you know, identified as people of colour. Um, but I had no role models. There was no support systems in place, no kind of LGBT counsellors or people to, that I could talk to openly about what I was feeling or what I was going through. Um, the stigma surrounding mental health was still quite, well, very strong, you know, because nobody wanted to open up to say, I need help, really. Not in the, the, the wider communities. And if in, even in the, as a South Asian, if you did raise your voice to say, I need some help. Again, you immediately stigmatized and it was a taboo subject matter. Um, but I, I managed to pull myself through. Tough time. I mean, as you say, it was right at the kind of, I suppose it's becoming the the, the tail end of the beginning, if that makes sense, of, of the AIDS uh, epidemic, pandemic, where it was being understood better by the early 90s in some respect. Obviously still no PEP or PrEP. There was still, it was still, um, exp life expectations were still extremely short. And there's still a lot of stigma around being gay and, and the link with HIV. Whether you had HIV or not, it was still assumed that, that every, it was a gay disease. And it was, it was, even the religious argument was it was God or your God inflicting this on you for being gay. And so there must have been a huge amount of uh, internalization of, 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 of hatred and religious conflict there that you were going through. Yeah. I think for it, I think we got a, we have a term for it nowadays, isn't it? We could, they say it's internalized homophobia, uh, and at that time, I think that's what I experienced. I, again, I couldn't put a name to it, but 
I was one of these people that on the one side, if I'd seen a gay couple or an individual who expressed themselves and confirmed that they were part of the LGBT community, on the one side, I appeared to be quite appalled by it and I wanted to step away from it. But on the other side, it was like, I want a piece of that. I want to be able to express myself in that way. I admire that person, the, the confidence that they have to be who they want to be. And there's no qualms and no ifs or buts about it. They were just there. Um, and it took me a long time to come to terms with who I, who I was and what I wanted and what I needed, you know. Um, and that's when, you know, when I came back from London um, and I met my partner a year later, um, and that was a that was a, a, a barrier that we overcome, overcame as well. You know, because for me, initially, it was a case of, okay, he's a white guy, older, but that was it. That was the only thought that I had. Um, it's only much, much later that people said, but there's other aspects of your relationship, Kukan, that have you ever considered? And to me, I just thought, no, we're a couple together. Um, but somebody highlighted the fact that we, you know, different ethnicities, different religions, we're <clears throat> different kind of age group, different outlook on life, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, there are so many differences. But, you know, that's what makes it a unique relationship because we learn to overcome that, that difference. You can celebrate the difference rather than see it as a problem, can't you? I, I think that's a, a beautiful love story in my mind that you you have those differences, yet you're in love. And it shows that those differences are largely irrelevant in, in the world. And we, we don't need to focus on the differences all the time. We we can celebrate love and acceptance and, and each other without seeing those differences. And I, I think, I, I think, I think it's a great love story. And, uh, no, I think it's amazing. You've been together, what, 30 odd years. So that's 30 brilliant. years. Yeah. Because one, one of our, in the early years, obviously, you know, I, I was being, um, taunted, I suppose, by people that I knew to say, what am I doing with a white older guy? The emphasis being on the fact that he's white. Whereas my, my partner, he was being, um, ridiculed because he happened to be going with a person of South Asian heritage, you know, and from both sides, we received a lot of derogatory comments about what we were doing. Um, lots of questions were raised as well, you know, and at one point we were having a meal together with a couple of friends and the friend turned around and said, well, what, what do you two have in common? You know, because, and he listed all, all the things that we had opposite views and tasting like music clothes styles etc and i said it's not so much about the the materialistic things that matter it's about how we've connected as individuals um and even now it's like we, we sit together and it's like who would have thought that we've made it for so long you know and in the early years people said oh it's going to take three months or six months or a year um but we've come through it, not without its own kind of uh, barriers and obstacles. We've we've kind of faced we faced you know hostility at various stages in our lives. But whatever life events we've had, we've we've learned to it's made yeah. us stronger. You've been together for so long, so you together you've been through Section Twenty Eight together. You've been through um, the uh, was it the uh, the civil partnership. Uh, act that was created in the early 2000s, wasn't it? Yes. And then the the uh, 
the same sex marriage, which was yeah. what, 2012, 2013, something like that. So you, you've seen the evolution of zero rights for, for gay people to be married, to be, to be recognized, to have pensions, uh, to be able to claim benefits or, yeah. or all these kind of things to seeing the evolution of those rights. And you, you must be kind of looking back the 30 years and seeing how that your life together has evolved to be recognized and validated by, by the world, if you like, or certainly by our world. Yeah, most, most definitely, you know, in the, as I said, in the early years, it was quite difficult for me to, I could quite openly say within our relationship, you know, with families and that, you know, I'm gay, but in the workplace, it was a different kettle of fish, you know, because there were times when I thought I can't say, you know, because if somebody said, do you have a, a partner or I, I never used to talk about relationships. Um, I used to just say something like quite vague and say something like, um, yeah, I've got somebody in my life and leave it at that. And if they dared to ask further questions, I'll say, whatever you're asking, it's too personal to me. So I refuse to answer. But I'll tell you what, John, what happened was one of the turning points was I was I attended an AIDS awareness workshop for the city council. Um, and I was there as a participant attendee. And one of the other attendees, um, she said, gay people to me are like a sheep with a dog's head or a dog with a sheep's head. She said, I just don't get it. I don't understand it at all. And I didn't have the confidence at that point in my life to speak up. You know, I just said, I just told her, it was a very insensitive comment to make, but I kind of left it at that. But when I went home, I was so angry with myself and so upset. I did say to my other half, I said, I can't stand this. If people are going to be making comments about us, and people like me and you being who are gay, you know, we, we're, we're trying to get on with our lives. If people are going to start making those comments, I need to speak up about it. Um, and that was the turning point. So when people did begin to ask me about um, being gay, I'd quite openly say, yes, I am. Or if they did start saying things which were very critical or homophobic or biphobic, transphobic, I used to kind of challenge it in a way that, you know, I didn't want to offend them either to create a hostile environment because it's a workplace. But I did it in a way that sort of made them think twice about what they were saying. And even now, to this day, um, in the work in the workplace, I still find that I'm challenging people. Mm. Yeah, my my wife finds it sometimes confusing for her. I mean, we we've been married thirty four years, and I transitioned what five or six years ago. So for twenty well. <laughs> 28 years of our marriage, she, I was her husband. Um, it was very e easy, very vanilla. And now she, when she's describing me, she has to sometimes decide she's going to describe me as her husband. And sometimes she, she describes me as her partner because sometimes it, it just doesn't make sense to go, here's my husband and I walk in. So she, if I'm going to be present, she'll describe me as a partner because she feels less awkward that way. Um, so we, we actually joke about it. Am, am I going to be your partner? Am I going to be your husband? Just because of societal expectations yeah. and just making it easier for straight people and, and non-trans people to get their head around it. We, we kind of go, oh, it doesn't matter. We don't need to fight this battle today. We'll just, we'll just go along with whatever makes you more comfortable. So, yeah, we recognize it. And, and when my daughter's walking around Tesco's with me and she shouts, oi, dad, I kind of go, cringe but at the end of the day i'm a dad and i i i love being a dad so it's uh it, it, yeah but people give you a funny look sometimes it's like 
how does that work? You go, well, it, it just works. I'm cool with it. If you, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think yeah. that's really important, isn't it? About about how you feel as well, isn't it? How comfortable you feel when people are sort of um, calling out to you or sort of labeling you, I suppose. You know, mm. but it is it is kind of. You, you look at the life, and, you, and as you quite rightly says, looking at how things have evolved. I think another turning point for me was we lived in Devon for a couple of years in 2005, and we came back in 2007. Um, and obviously, we had experienced homophobia at that point, up until that point. And then I seen this um, a Stonewall advert emblazoned on the side of a bus to say that, you know, um, homophobia is a crime. Call the police if you're a victim of it. And I was so, so impressed that I came home and I said to my other half, I said, you know, if anybody says anything homophobic now, we can call the police straight away. And that really offered us a lot of reassurances, you know. Um, so, you know, when, when we do feel attacked, we do call the police now. You know, the last number of years, we've called the police. Um, whereby at one point in our history, if you call the police, it was generally ignored, really. You know, and that in itself is a, that's a milestone, to be honest. You know, little things can make such a huge difference and offer so much reassurances. Now, I'm just hoping that the, the next generation coming through, they don't have to put up with the crap, to be honest, that we've had to put up with. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I looked at the stats recently and uh, four out of five hate crimes, LGBTQ plus hate crimes, still go unreported. <laughs> And it's it's higher amongst the younger generation. I guess it's going to be because younger generation are more likely to fight their own battles or or see the, the authority of the police in a different light. Maybe get more when you get older. Maybe you're, you're more likely to to report it. Um, but if we're looking at four out of five under, level of underreporting, then the level of hate crime is still going on, still prevalent. We see stats. We see. Um, reports around LGBTQ plus in in employment. We still see people coming out of university, packing their gayness away in the in the trunk yeah. and, and going into corporate life and cover and mask until they know it's safe. And this is still going on, and we still see yeah, the um, the prevalence of, of banter and jokes and homophobic microaggressions. Maybe not blatant in some cases, but people are made to feel less than. Uh, so even in 2021, we still see a lot of oppression from LGB and the T and the Q community still being in in, in the mainstream media, on Twitter, everywhere. Yeah, is it really better? And it's a shame, really. And I think it doesn't help when you have, um, you know, leaders of the world who are very much conservative in their outlooks. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why there's pushback against the LGBTI plus community, because they're saying it's okay to demonize us. And then followers, I suppose, they pick up on that vibe and they do what they think is right for them. But, you know, it is utopia to us for an ideal world in which we're, we're just free to be who we want to be, you know. But we, there's nothing stopping us for striving for it, though, is there, really? Um, you know, and, and, and like for me, looking back on my, my years, the childhood years and coming through it, um, I just wish I had that little bit more strength or confidence to be who I wanted to be. You know, in the 80s, we had the goths and the new romantics and the punks and all these different subcultures. And the, the 
conservative, not the conservative, like political conservative, but the more kind of reserved aspects of me. Um, I loved that. But because I was brought up the way I was, you know, that Muslim people don't do this or Asians don't do that. I just thought I, I can't, you know. Um, but I just wish that people had that confidence to do what they needed to do, you know. And that's why I applauded the um, the LGBT uh, schools that implemented No Outsiders program to introduce diversity and respect and inclusion to say that we're all different. We're all different. We've all got different aspects and different identities um, and that we all should be respected and loved for who we are. You know, if if we had that type of thing when I was a child, I think my my mindset would have been completely different to where it is now. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think we have evolved a long way. I think the the level of, I hate this word, acceptance of, of, of queer community is, is greater than ever ever has been. But there's still the vocal majority, or sorry, vocal minority who are very loud, very well financed, very well organised, as you as you intimated, probably backed by the popularist sort of more right wing governments and and, and movements in, around the world. Because you, know, you look at what we're talking about at the moment. So, what well, couple couple of months ago it was World Blood Day, wasn't it? So, thirteenth of June, it was, we changed, the, the rules were changed on on gay men being able to donate blood and answer answer the same questions as anybody else. Yeah, so being a gay man was no longer a barrier. You still, have, yeah, like everybody else, you have to say if you have diseases or risk or whatever. So, yeah, uh, I thought that was a state, but that's twenty twenty one before that became law. And now we're now we're debating the banning of conf- conversion therapy. Why are we debating this? We're having conversations around. Oh, hang on a bit. We need religious exceptions. We need to have this. We need to have. Oh, we can't have. Uh, we can't ban conversion therapy against trans people because that means we're going to have to be positively affirming people's identities. It's like, hang on a minute. We're trying to pick apart legislation that says to ban conversion therapy, and to sort of question all the elements of it. And I think, are we still there? Are we still debating that basic right? To exist, I mean, if we were talking about banning straight conversion therapy, you know, imagine imagine a straight person being converted through electrolysis or electrocuting to be gay. Imagine the uproar. Exactly. Put put queer people through this conversion therapy, even though maybe it doesn't happen often in practice, but there's still pressure uh, to fix people, isn't there? And I, I, and I, I can't believe in 2021 we're still talking about this being socially acceptable. Well, I I think it's quite ironic that the very person or peoples who started up the campaign to ban conversion therapy, one of the main reasons that they set up that campaign um, is because of the religious aspects of it. You know, it's because of the religion that they stepped it up a gear to say this needs to be banned. And yet the Government Equalities Office are looking at exceptions from religion. And to me, that doesn't make sense. Because I was approached by um, a couple of people from that office, and I said, you know, if it's if the campaign stems from conversion therapy in a religious setting, and you're looking at maybe sort of um, respecting other people's religious viewpoints, then what's the point? What's the point in having the consultation? Um, so yeah, that that I just said, you know what, you just need to create a blanket ban completely. 
you know, what, why, why should we have these conversations and asking various organizations and individuals about whether or not they agree with the wording? Why can't they just make it law to, to ban it completely? But they said, that's not how it works. I said, but you, as, as politicians go, they, they can implement laws willy nilly without debate and consultation, can't they really? You know, and this is, yeah, I mean, basic human right. Consult now. Yeah. I read some today about there's this debate again about um, whether misogyny should be a hate crime, and including anti um, homophobia uh, or homophobia is part of the one of the sentencing factors. In the same way that race, racial tension or religious tension is, is a sentencing factor, they want to add uh, homophobia, sexism, etc. into that as well. And I noticed when I read the consultation, they talk about an exception that says gender critical views will be allowed so we want to we want to make sure that trans people queer people lgbtq plus people are protected oh but yeah but we'll make an exception for people who are gender critical who want to attack trans people that's okay still you think hang on a minute you're, you're protecting a b c d e f g and h o j but what about the t where does it when when, when do we find it yeah. when do we finally find a place in society where we're not the front line of attack anymore. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure you felt this maybe in the 90s and, and, and early 2000s. It's like every day you wake up and go, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. And it's just this onslaught. It, it, I mean, I'm a pretty resilient person, but even I'm getting kind of like, oh, let's just turn the volume down. I, I can't I can't yeah. venture onto that anymore. Yeah, and I think it is about sort of like you see, I think the key word is resilience, isn't it? And for some of us, we do have that resilience. But I am mindful as well that there's some people who are not uber-sensitive or hypersensitive, but they've they've got different kind of mindsets. Their world is different to ours. You know, their life journey and experience is different to ours. So for them, it's about what will trigger them. And how. It, as I said to you earlier, it's about how it impacts on mental health as well. You know, um, some people are quite in tune with their own personal mental health. But some people aren't. They don't realise what can make them upset or what can trigger them until they're actually in, in that position. So you know, like some of us are, are really good in challenging the status quo, but some of us we get we can only go so far, and then we have to withdraw for whatever reason. Um, and we have to be mindful of that. Sorry. Yeah, my resilience only goes so far. It, it has a. It's a bit like a Duracell battery. You get so far, then dush, the the power goes. And my resilience is uh, it fades as well. So yeah, it's I have to I have to yeah protect myself sometimes, and it's not always easy. Yeah. Yes. Um, Kikan, do you want to talk to me about your British Empire Medal? I know you're very proud of that, and we haven't covered it so far. So. How did that come about? I think you've also said you've got an interesting story about how you first found out you've been nominated. So tell me about that. Um, well, I think because I've done my activism for so long now, the LGBT activism for the South Asian community, um, and I definitely am a minority in the minority and definitely on the peripherals of the whole kind of LGBT activism spectrum. Because um, one is, I find a lot of activism is based in London or up north like Manchester, predominantly London, I would say. And there's me doing my little bits here in the Midlands. And there's very few, very few, I think just a 
half a dozen of us who are activists in our own rights and we identify as South Asian, queer or LGBT. Um, so what happened was um, at the beginning, like February 2020, um, I received a, a letter to say I was nominated for what they call a Points of Light Award, which is um, given by Downing Street. And now it's not politically affiliated. I'm just making that clear. It's whichever party is in government at that time, they will hand one out. Uh, there's only so many recipients who receive the Points of Light Award, and I was really fortunate to receive that one. Um, and then later on in the last year, in summer, I received an email. Um, I thought it was a phishing scam because uh, it was, you know, it had the, uh, the like the royal signage on there, and I just thought this has got to be a joke, you know, to say that I've been nominated for a British Empire Medal, and I even spoke to my partner about it, and we just kind of, um, I didn't delete it, fortunately, but I saved it, and I just thought, you know, if it's real, um, I'll, I'll work with it. But I had to do a quick Google search to make sure that it wasn't a phishing scam. Um, and I didn't really comprehend fully the impact of being nominated for one until I received a, a hard copy letter through the post. And then I realized it was official. Um, yeah, so the, the nomination was there because of my advocacy for LGBT equality. Um, and obviously they thought, they thought I was a deserving individual. I think one of the aspects on that is because maybe they think that I uphold British values, inverted commas. Um, but hence why I said that I, I kind of look at logic and reason through complex situations because it weighed so heavily on my mind. And, you know, I kind of thought, do I accept it? Do I not? Um, you know, looked at the reasons why I should accept it, looked at the reasons why I, I shouldn't. And I know that it has got um, links to a, very much a colonial past, but there's other reasons as to why I accepted it, you know. Um, and looking back now, I am very proud of that, to be honest. And I think my parents in particular, who, you know, they passed away, I think they would have appreciated it a lot. And especially my dad, he would have been very proud of me to think that one of his sons has received this accolade from the Queen herself. You know, um, as I said, he, he, he championed the South Asian community and although we clashed, I stepped in and I look at the, the flip side, the, the more taboo subject matters, sexuality, gender identity and mental health. But I'm still striving for change that makes it better for us to integrate a lot more than what we have been. So who actually presented you with the, uh, the Empire Medal? Who was the person who pinned it on? Um, well, it... it would have been the Queen, but because of COVID regulations, that didn't happen. So we went to the University of Birmingham, and it was the Lord Lieutenant who um, pins the okay. badge. So that was an honour in itself. And I have heard that there will be a party at Buckingham Palace next year. So um, we'll see. So there'll be kind of a catch-up for all of those that uh, receive their, their, their awards yes. in other places to come and, uh, and have a, a – that would be lovely. I, I, I went to a, a Palace Garden party 
um, back in ooh, 2010, I think it was, the year that the, the heavens opened and it hailstoned like crazy in London. I'm standing in the middle of uh, Buckingham Palace lawn with my wife, being bombarded with sort of uh, hapenny-sized uh, hailstones. Um, uh, but we got to meet the Queen. We got to meet uh, Prince Philip, Duke of uh, Edinburgh at the time. And it was very nice for the cucumber sandwiches. But, uh, yeah, it was a, a good honour to go to go to the garden party. But as you were as you were speaking, I remember at the beginning of this this episode, you said that there weren't any role models as you were growing up. That there was no queer Muslim people that you could look up to or aspire to. And I I, I thought myself, one of the, the biggest challenges we have is lack of role models, lack of visibility, lack of people actually being just being themselves. And so when you said that you, you accepted the the Empire Medal knowing about some of the colonial past and some of the other sort of negative connotations. I just perceived you as such a great, a great honor for you, not only for you, but also being an advocate for the South Asian LGBT community. You've given hope and light to others just by, by being you and having that recognized. I think, I think, I think that it's a, it's a great honor and I, and I'm, immensely respectful of, of what you did to earn it and be awarded it and the fact you you accepted it as a, as a voice in the community i think i think, I think it's great i i want to see more openly trans people more openly gay people in public office uh, in football in everywhere in every work of life and you know we can we can we can celebrate programs like strictly having the same sex couple with John yes. and Johannes in this, we can celebrate that, but we're still seeing it as a, a kind of, a, I don't know, a circus act is kind of, we're celebrating them. Really, we should be just recognizing that some people are gay, some people are straight. Let's just get on with it. We do, we shouldn't have the, the, the tokenistic couple there. We should be having a, a whole blend of people, um, not just one gay couple. We, we should have 50-50, if you like, or whatever the ratio is. But, yeah, I, I think, again, the BBC, I guess, step on eggshells. They're, they're trying not to offend anybody still. Um, it's going to evolve over time. Maybe we will see more an openly gay prime minister, an openly trans MP at some point, uh, in the same way that uh, we we are starting to see openly trans people in, in senior roles in organizations at long last and it won't be just such a, a kind of a a blip uh an unusual sight it'll just be kind of part of everyday life exactly exactly and that's why i i say to people that when the kind of change that i want to see that yes we do have lgbt organizations or what have you but i'd like them not to exist if that makes sense because i want to get to the point whereby if somebody says have you got a partner? And, you know, you can say, yeah, I've got a husband, wife or whatever. You can, And if they say, are you gay or part of the LGBT community? And if you say yes, it's a, it's a so what? It's not a big deal that it's a so what. Whereas now we're still experiencing that. So, oh, my gosh, this person has come out as gay or this person's come out as trans or bisexual. Um, I think one of the more major bastions of the pl- world is where I want to see changes in football to be honest I would like to see an openly gay footballer I know one came through recently but I haven't seen anybody in the UK step forward um, and I think that will make a huge change if it do, if it does yeah I, I, I kind of I'm not trying to defend it but there's 
I can understand the challenges of being a, an international footballer who's openly gay. It limits your competition in sport. It limits your marketing potential in certain countries of the world. And I'm not saying it's all about – it shouldn't be about the money and it shouldn't be about um, – the abuse you're, you're going to get if you come out and all those sort of things. But it, it's, there's an immense amount of pressure to be openly gay in, in sports still, isn't there? It's, if, if you think about Qatar World Cup, yeah, openly gay and traveling there, it makes you a target. It makes you, um, it, draw, it, it means you, you can't travel with a partner. You, you've got to have separate hotel rooms, et cetera, et cetera. You can't show, you know, hold hands in public. There's a whole load of things that the media is going to be all over you and your life will no longer be about how good your football is. It's about how, how gay your football is, if you like. And it's bad enough with racism in football at the moment, isn't it? So I think I'd love to see a change as well. I, I And it's going to need more than rainbow laces campaigns yes. to create that safety. Uh, maybe we can see the younger generation being more open, being out before you're famous. Maybe, maybe that's the, um, even Tom Daly struggled, didn't he? he? He, Tom came out as effectively questioning or, or buy or not sure for a while. Yes, and he, he, did, yeah. he wasn't confident enough to come straight out and say, I'm gay. I'm in a relationship. Cause that's a huge amount of pressure, isn't it? It's a huge amount of pressure to, uh, to compete and have that media attention on you as well. Yeah, I, I do understand that side as well. But that's why one of the main topics that I discuss when, I, when I'm at conferences and workshops is about how not being true to yourself um, does impact on mental health. Um, you know, and then you, the stats about mental health are really high as well. So, you know, it, it's it's a twofold uh, dilemma isn't it isn't it do you come out or do you not and if you don't come out how does it impact on your mental health and yes there are some people who are able to lead um for want of a better word phrase dual lives they're able to do that but it's in the long term who does it impact on most Hmm. oh i completely agree it's um since i was honest with myself and honest with the world i my mental health is is it's completely different. I have a different view on the world. So yeah, I, I understand the difference between that, that unlocking that freedom of expression, that freedom of who you are, how, how that empowers you to just be a better version of you. So exactly. I get it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but going back to the original point being that being on the peripherals, I'm sure we've all been on the peripheral of a community at some point in our lives. Um, some of us more so than others. Um, but when you come through as South Asian, Muslim, Pakistani, brown-skinned and gay, you know, and not being able to fit in in any particular kind of quarters, I suppose, or groups, it, it, it does kind of make you rethink life and how you navigate through it as well. You know, and, and as a... Kind of built your own... You built your own chosen family, I guess, now. You've uh, you forged your own way of living rather than necessarily fitting into other people's communities. You've created your own your own family, your own community. Yeah, well, I've tried. I've tried to, you know, sort of I've got people that I can rely on, people that I can trust, you know, and it's a very diverse range of people. And um, you know yourself from looking at my Facebook, there's so many different people on there who are, you know, some are atheists, some are ex-Muslims, some have got very kind of varied viewpoints on the world. Um, 
but I'm glad that I've attracted these kind of different people, um, you know, because that's what life is all about, isn't it? Attracting, connecting, sharing viewpoints in a respectful way rather than kind of uh, anger, anger. Um, you know, and I think it just helps. And for me, though, as I said to my partner, and he says to me as well, is that, you know, we can lead the, the lives as best as we can. And if we die and there is a God or Allah, we're not exactly going to have the opportunity to come back and say, you know what, you've got it wrong or you've got it right, you know, because we've got to just make the best of what we have. Yes. Live life, your life, be you, um, stand up for what you believe in. Exactly. And hopefully be a, a fantastic role model for others who follow. Uh, I think there's a very good morals and standards to live by. So, yeah, I, I commend that completely. So you, you, your background is in health and social care, and you spend a lot of time working with homeless people. So you must see a lot of the impact of, of mental health, especially within the homeless or, or, or um, the rough sleeping community. Is it is it getting worse? I mean, do we, are we seeing a higher rate of mental health issues now than we ever have? Um, well, I, I, I don't necessarily work with street sleepers or street homelessness. I work with young people who, um, for whatever reason, you know, it could be family dynamics have changed or relationship has um, broken down or something. So um, I work with young people. And in the last couple of years, there are a number of young people coming through who are experiencing more anxiety and depressions than ever before. I don't know if that's because of COVID kind of um, and the restrictions that's placed upon young people who are so kind of wanting to get out and socialize a lot more. That could be one of the reasons or, or something completely different. But we have noticed in the last year that people entering the service are experiencing more anxieties and depressions than, than before. And it has peaked a lot more whereas before we might have two, maybe two or three individuals we're having a lot more coming through with those kind of um, diagnosed or undiagnosed um, mental health issues and it's a shame you know um, but I'm quite fortunate that I recently received my mental health first aid certificate um, so I'm now able able and better equipped to signpost individuals and refer them to the necessary organizations or agencies that require that that support um, but, you know, the mental health aspects of, of it, whether they're homeless or not, um, plays an integral part of our conversations that we have on a regular basis in the workplace. You know, because we're, we're very mindful now of how, where people are coming from, how they're identifying, what they're going through, you know, what's their end result, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I, I see a lot of example of this in, with other people I talk with in the health and social care sector and yeah it's it's a challenge it's we're, we're in this always on world now social media pressure likes how we're, we're always on the spotlight and it must be a lot of pressure for young people to live in that world I mean when, when we were younger we could just turn off once we once it got dark we left the park took our football went home and then we were we off and there was no pressures there so yeah now there's almost more pressured online to to be liked to be popular to be part of something and uh yeah it's it's, it's a real struggle there is that um but again that's i think that, that there's an element of um owning privileges at that an entitlement but the other side to that is um we we've, we do have a number of like refugees and 
coming through from different parts of the world. So their objectives are completely different. Their priority is definitely to be housed as well. But again, their mental health pressures come from the fact that they're experiencing um, loneliness or isolation or not being able to socialise as much as what they could do if they were, say, back home. Um, bearing in mind that number of, of fleeing political persecution for whatever reason. Um, you know, so, so it, I think working with homeless people and social care in the last 20 odd years is people have so many different issues and different dynamics to contend with that, um, you know, some aspects of their identity sometimes is pushed aside and some aspects are brought to the forefront, um, you know, which does make a huge difference. And some people, like you said earlier, are very comfortable in their own skin and they make their voices known. Uh, and that's a good thing. Well, Gan, thank you so much. I, I can't believe we've been chatting for an hour already. Uh, I can certainly keep, keep chatting to you all night. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm sure our listeners will have much to ponder and take inspiration from. If they want to get in touch with you, are you happy for people to get in contact with you? How would they do that? Oh, that's fine. They just use my name, Kakan Qureshi. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, LinkedIn. Um, send me an email if they need to as well. So, yeah, I'm quite happy to connect with people uh, as long as they're kind of respectful towards me and me towards them. Um, and I'm ha- happy to help out where I can as well. Fantastic. I'll put your contact details in the show notes so people do want to get hold of you, they can. And also when I share this on LinkedIn, I'll tag you in. Again, people can get hold of you that way as well. So, so thank you so much. Oh, thank um, you very much for having me. Uh, pleasure. Thank you to the listeners and thank you for tuning in, for uh, staying online and, and listening this far. Please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Uh, tell your friends and colleagues, please do share these episodes. I have a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally as inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, then let me know if you've got other comments or suggestions, how we can improve the show. Again, please email me to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.